Early in the Civil War at the Battle of Manassas, the center of the Union attack was overwhelming Confederate forces. It appeared that Confederate forces would soon be put to a flight, and the route would be on. General Jackson was told by General Bernard B. that all hope was lost, and they must retreat. Before the war, Thomas Jonathan Jackson served as professor of natural and experimental philosophy and instructor of artillery tactics at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington, Virginia. He was an odd, eccentric man who struggled to make simple conversation. He was seen in church pew or in his professor's chair straight-backed, never letting his spine touch the back of pew or chair. He would walk to and from class with his sword on his hip, not satisfied with letting his scabbard hang at his waist. He would hold his sword from the middle as if he were prepared to draw at any moment. He had a reputation for being the butt of the university and was generally not liked by the students. During heightened tensions between North and South, the students grew restless and were causing mischief with the Union soldiers. The university held an assembly with the aim of calming the growing animosity of the student body against the Union soldiers. After several speeches had been made, there ensued a long pause. Perhaps some reply was expected from the cadets. At last, the painful silence was broken by a cadet crying out, Major Jackson! The cry was taken up by others until it became general and continuous. Aware of Jackson's awkwardness and shyness, many may have called for him the spirit of mischief, but doubtless the majority of cadets, knowing his straightforwardness and sense of justice, desired from him some expression of approval or sympathy. Rising from his seat, he was greeted with loud applause. He waited till the noise subsided, then with body erect and eyes sparkling, as they did so often afterward on the field of battle, he said, with a vigor and fluency that was a surprise to all, Military men, when they make speeches, should say but few words, and speak them to the point. I admire, young gentlemen, the spirit you have shown in rushing to the defense of your comrades. But I must commend you particularly for the readiness with which you have listened to the counsel and obeyed the orders of your superior officer. The time may be near at hand when your state will need your services, and if that time does come, then draw your swords and throw away the scabbards. Back at the Battle of Manassas, General B. told Jackson they needed to retreat. He told Jackson that the lines could not hold, they were collapsing. Jackson's response was unexpected. Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Jackson went on the offensive. He attacked when all around him were retreating. One biographer writes, what steady those soldiers was Jackson. He rode slowly back and forth along the line, moving in a shower of death as calmly as a farmer about his farm. The blaze of his eye was unmistakable. There plainly was a soul on fire with deep feeling and the ardor of battle. A slumbering volcano clearly burned beneath the face so calm and collected. Stonewall Jackson is a beacon of masculine Christian virtue. His faith was strong and his courage is unmatched in American history. There's men like Jackson that we must look to to recover the ethos of the new Christendom. Why then do the great-great-grandchildren of Stonewall Jackson despise him? Why was it the family of Stonewall Jackson that most adamantly fought for a statue of their great-great-grandfather to be removed? Somewhere in their family history, the Jackson family lost the hearts of their children. 
In an open letter to the mayor of Richmond, Virginia, they say the following. We are native Richmonders and also the great-great-grandsons of Stonewall Jackson. As two of the closest living relatives to Stonewall, we are writing today to ask for the removal of his statue, as well as the removal of all Confederate statues from Monument Avenue. They are overt symbols of racism and white supremacy, and the time is long overdue for them to depart from public display. They continue. Ongoing racial disparities in incarceration, educational attainment, police brutality, hiring practices, access to health care, and perhaps most starkly, wealth, make it clear that these monuments do not stand somehow outside of history. Racism and white supremacy, which undoubtedly continue today, are neither natural nor inevitable. Rather, they were created in order to justify the unjustifiable, in particular, slavery. One thing that bonds our extended family, besides our common ancestor, is that many have worked, often as clergy and as educators, for justice in their communities. While we do not pretend to speak for all of Stonewall's kin, our sense of justice leads us to believe that removing the Stonewall statue and other monuments should be part of a larger project of actively mending the racial disparities that hundreds of years of white supremacy has wrought. We hope other descendants of Confederate generals will stand with us. As cities all over the South are realizing now, we are not in need of added context. We are in need of new context, one in which the statues have been taken down. Respectfully, William Jackson Christian and Warren Edmund Christian signed the great-great-grandsons of Thomas Jonathan Stonewall Jackson. The King's Hall podcast exists to make self-ruled men who rule well and win the world. Well, gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the King's Hall podcast. I am here with one of my favorite hosts, myself, <laughs> Eric Kahn. I knew it. I, knew I, it. I was wondering who we were going to I pick. knew it. I knew No, instantly I knew it. And also, also two other guys that are okay. Dan Burkholder. I mean, not bad. And Hello. then below him, Brian Harmonica Sauve. Uh Thank you for thank you for using my formal title. I appreciate that. By the way, I never hated a harmonica more <laughs> than having to listen to it. The best part is that in office all the time. When I'm recording a harmonica, I have headphones on with what I'm recording too, so you only hear the harmonica. You get the pure, unadulterated, straight to your veins, mainlined harmonica. So you're welcome. So it could be worse. It could. It glorious. That is what it is. Thank you. That was actually a recording of Brian earlier today mm-hmm. saying glorious in preparation for the show. Do you genuinely yeah. like the harmonica, Brian, or is it just because we dislike what you've done to our lives? I like it more the more that you don't. Okay, so this <laughs> is... No, I actually like the harmonica. I like the bat... I don't necessarily love like blues, traveler, crazy, skilled harmonica. I like the Bob <laughs> the Dylan... Good the good kind. No, I'm yeah. saying I like the only knows how to play chords, but like... Piano Man. I genuinely like that harmonica. Okay, very quickly. Greatest greatest song with harmonica. Obviously, Tom Petty, Last Dance with Mary Jane. Behind that one, what comes in? Uh, wow. I don't know where to start other than a definite front runner is Josiah and the Bonifils cover of Taylor Swift's song, Antihero. Where is the... Oh. Why are you gay? Okay. And go listen to it, guys. I can't believe I just advertised. Probably Pagan. I don't know. Taylor Swift. Well, Taylor Swift, definitely. I didn't know you were This a is a country He's a cover. He's a Swifty. Huh. 
country the cover. The sweet psalmist of Ogden is a Swifty. Wow. I Breaking okay. news. Listen, Breaking news. Listen, I refuse to own that. <laughs> Even though the safest track right now would be to act like I like that you guys are saying that to make you say it less. But I really actually am uncomfortable right now. <laughs> <laughs> actually. Uh, Dan, what makes you uncomfortable in life? So many things, Eric. <laughs> so many things. So many things. Actually, a lot of what's in our culture today makes me uncomfortable. Wow. Yeah. That was a good segue. It, I, it, makes, it was so good, it makes me want to destroy it. Dude, ride that segue that. right into the show, like, Eric. Just divert it right back to our <laughs> pointless banter. Yeah, exactly. Well, if I know one thing about podcast listeners, it's that they want 15 to 20 minutes of meaningless banter before they get into the topic of the episode. That's basically the show. Constant feedback I see on Twitter is that. We're tearing down the model of what podcasting people think it should be. Dan, in the cold open, we heard about people who were tearing down other things. That was quite the transition. That was good. That <laughs> Essentially, was good. since we we're definitely not tearing down anything with podcasting. It was so, smooth. Dan, one of the things that intrigues us, uh, we were talking about this before the episode, uh, in our extensive long-range planning for the episodes, and this one in particular, we are talking about this idea of grandsons, in, in the case of the cold open, Stonewall Jackson's great-great-grandkids, advocating for the tearing down of Confederate monuments. And for what we're talking about with legacy and the show, this seems like the anti-type of what we're aiming at as fathers and men. We want our sons to protect, defend, and continue building monuments of the past generation. So it's got to be at the top of your list of things that uh, we should be against, right? Tearing down these statues? Well, yeah. I mean, there's a principle in Scripture that says not to move the ancient landmarks of your forefathers, right? And so there's a reason for that. Now, you can argue, like, yeah, maybe maybe everything the Confederacy stood for wasn't ideal, but the – boy, what should I say? Name one thing. I could – I'm just kidding. <laughs> one thing that was wrong. <laughs> mm, that's actually really hard. No, um, there's many things that the Confederacy did stand for. In a lot of ways, I can't remember where I read it, but somebody had said that was the last stand of the first Christendom mm-hmm. was the Confederacy. And so even that monument in itself, the monument to Stonewall Jackson and to Robert E. Lee is always in there. Yeah, right. To the but specifically to Stonewall Jackson, have his his generations tear down the monument to the work that he did, the man that he was. Great Christian. And man. the principles that he stood for. Yeah. Is Pres- Presbyterian. Go on. Yeah. His a lot of people may not know this. His his chaplain in when he was Serving as general was R.L. Dabney. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Dad. Sounds federal vision. I don't know. <laughs> federal vision. Federal <laughs> vision. In, Dab- in the 1800s. <laughs> that classic 1800s federal vision. Yes. That's right. Uh, Dabney, of course, uh, has a phenomenal sermon on Stonewall Jackson's life. It's mainly about his courage, um, but also one of the first people to really point out that what he said, Dabney, one of the biggest threats uh, to America and American society would be feminism. Interesting. Yeah. So, and he was dealing with the first waivers, who, most of whom were all like, you know, Caddy Stanton and those people were. Her name was literally Caddy. Caddy. That literally. is unfortunate. That name is... physiognomy though. <laughs> Check. On point. Check. Uh, don't, but yeah, don't know anything about it. Even her. with those people, a lot of Unitarians. Um, you know all you need to know with a name like that. That's right. <laughs> that's right, boys. Stanton. Walk away. Yes. So Brian, I want to get your thoughts. Uh, first of all, just, we're going to be talking in this episode about winning our kids' hearts so that they continue building and doing the work that we've set out to do because it's going to take generations. But before we get there, just 
general thoughts on like, do you see the tearing down of these monuments? Do you see it as a form of fifth commandment violation, a form of patricide? What, what, what is going on at the heart of, of that? Well, it certainly at least shows that there was a failure of cultural transmission somewhere along the way where the people who built those statues and they were, you know, post-Civil War. The, the war had been lost mm. by the the South and they still built these statues. This, there was a culture there that loved this these men enough and the ideals that they stood for that they went to great expense and effort and made public monuments to them. So, and, st- and still do today. And still do today. And so you have a failure of cultural transmission somewhere on down the generations to enculturate that same love into the current generation, at least on some level. You still have – obviously there's a, a large group of people in the South who would still very much – respect and honor General Lee and Stonewall Jackson, you know, all that. So uh, I'm not Luther saying King, total failure. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, at least when I was in Alabama, uh-huh. also known as Robert E. Lee Day. Is that what they did? Yeah, that's that is literally. That is trolling. <laughs> trolling. Wow. That's high level trolling. High level. So I think in terms of the topic for our for our episode today, we're talking about fathers uh, enculturating the, the properly ordered loves into their children we're talking about fathers passing on a culture to their children that is a thick enough culture, a glorious enough culture. You're welcome, trademark. Glorious. Thank you. To uh, that it's that it's compelling on through the generations, which I mean has a lot of practical handles on it. This topic we're thinking about, you know, that means that the culture you give your children can't just be a, a, a sort of veneer of Christianity. It can't be a thin culture. It can't be like the mega church, you know, sermons at the movies series. I don't even know what they call them. What do they call them? At the movies sermon series? Mm-hmm. You know, what you're talking about. like Christian culture. That Christian culture is not transmittable because it's it's nothing. It's cotton candy. Like a, a, a small rain storm will dissolve it entirely. Right. So we want granite statue, cathedral culture, teach our kids to love it. And uh, to me, that cold open uh, story is is a, one of the more powerful recent examples of the way that you can lose a culture and fail to transmit a culture. And I think there's some some interesting points there for us to think about in terms of fatherhood. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I especially like what you said. It, it really is a failure of cultural transmission and a failure to enculturate the same loves in our sons. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates again, many of you are asking, when will the madness stop? Are you currently placing 10, 15, or 20% of your income into the volatile stock market and subjecting your hard-earned cash to the whims of Wall Street? You already know that this is not an effective and safe wealth-building strategy. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, will show you a powerful and safe way to build guaranteed multi-generational wealth. With their guidance and step-by-step method, you will be able to create your very own privatized banking system. Imagine being able to direct major portions of your monthly cash flow into your banking system and immediately start earning tax-free compound interest. Once established, you will have access to your money through a private online portal. While your money is earning uninterrupted compound interest, you can use that same money as collateral for other investments or to start a new business or self-fund major life expenditures. Best of all, no new money is needed to start. 
See their contact information and access their free book in the show notes below. So as we delve into this, I want to kind of talk about two issues in the episode today. First would be just the family integrated worship. And then the second is going to be St. Brennan's in education. Because I think these, we agree, are kind of two of the pillars for cultural transmission is education and worship. Yeah. What's happening in the worship service. So we'll delve into a lot of what happened here at Refuge, why we changed, why you guys initiated the changes on those fronts. But first, just defend why are those two things, of all the things that we could start with, Dan, why start with worship as a central thing and then education? No, I, there are a lot more th- pillars yes. of enculturation, but I think those are two very, I guess, structurally important mm-hmm. pillars. The first one being worship because – the word culture is derived from the word cultus, which actually means worship, mm-hmm. meaning that the cultivation, uh, your your culture, it's all coming out of what you worship. And so why is worship important? It seems kind of redundant at that point, but right worship aligns with a right outflow of culture. And so you'll see in the culture what people worship. This isn't anything new or novel yeah, I, to me. I, I mean, this was like I was even Doug Wilson, of, Toby Sumter. Yeah. Henry uh, Van Til, Yeah. Culture is religion externalized. Right. Yeah. yeah. This is same type of, this is just fact, Eric. Yes. It's just fact. No. So, uh, right worship is, is really important. So that, that then makes you ask like, well, do mega churches not worship the true and living God? What about Catholic culture or Eastern Orthodox culture or, Lutheran pietism, like why, why do we have the culture we have? If, if there are churches that do worship the true and living God, why do they live differently? Yeah. We're talking about worship a certain way. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, It's really important. And, and Brian even said like not a thin worship or a thin culture, but a thick, rich, deep culture. And so I think that's why the type of worship is really important. How you structure your service is important. The elders you have, important. The men in the church are important. The families are important. Where the children are, are important. Obviously, like the doctrine and theology is important. All so, of that. The singing is important. Yeah. So at one point, uh, I think each of us were part of churches that were what we described in season one as big, fast, and famous, or mm-hmm. an iteration of that. Maybe like smaller, not as fast, and definitely not famous. But but, but I'll try to be. <laughs> but we were like following that model. Was there a point in you guys' ministry in this church particularly where you said, this is not going to be advantageous for cultural transmission? Like this isn't going to functionally, it's not going to do the thing that we now want to do. Yeah, one of the things I think that ran through that noticing was noticing what kind of fruit the, the, the strains and streams of Christian culture that we were coming from were producing. Mm. What, they were, what they were succeeding at and what they were failing at, and that was important to see. They were failing at transmitting robust faith to the next generation, mm. often in huge percentages, failing to do that. So we went, okay, whatever model they're using, even if it's what 98% of people are doing, we should probably question it if it's producing 80% apostasy rates, you know, that kind of thing. The other thing it was failing to produce is an educated uh, populace or an educated congregation. So so children weren't just apostate. They didn't know 
their theology, and they didn't know how to read the world properly. Mm. Well, and another thing we noticed, I don't know if you recall this, Brian, this was in an elders meeting, and whether we saw with accurate sight or not, I can't recall, but we were talking about church planting. Mm -hmm. And the question was asked, if we would we want to make another refuge church Mm -hmm. and repeat the same stuff we have here? And I remember a lot of the answers were no. Right. Interesting. Yeah, we said no. no. And part of it was because of the overall maturity of the men Mm -hmm. in the church. So it wasn't just children. Obviously, that's downstream of the type of men that we had in the church Mm -hmm. as well. And it was... Can you... They were designed to be that way. Right. Because of the theology, philosophy, ministry. Yeah, the discipleship. Absolutely. Can you describe like... The problem in the man, I'm I'm interested, like, what, what were you seeing? Yeah, so the standard man would essentially look like a, he would be an abdicating man. So almost like a petulant child that uh, his wife would have to lead and beg to have children because he wanted to abscond himself of responsibility at every turn. So mm-hmm. the the average guy would either be underperforming at work or not working and having his wife work. He would be neglecting having children because of the extra responsibilities and it would interfere with his hobbies. There was also uh, rampant pornography use, mm-hmm. even uh, recreational drug use uh, amongst other things. Uh, yeah. Maybe that's not the average, the average of the worse. Yeah. But, and there's also a, a, a sense in which we see as pastors, we interface kind of like police officers. Right. Yeah. They don't get a good snapshot of the culture of a city. They don't because no. they you deal the with worst. the worst 3% of those people. So there's that yeah. I think amplifies our perceptions. That was being uncharitable probably. <laughs> but, but that, that did describe a, a pretty significant number of, of men for certain. Yeah. I mean, at the best of the worst, you just had guys that were essentially not taking their role as husband very seriously and as father very seriously. The things that you would see, I think, running through a lot of the the households relates to one thing you mentioned. If something was happening that we'd be like, oh, that was good, like they're homeschooling their children uh, and using like a Christian curriculum of some sort, it would be because the wife did. Yeah. The wife was convinced of that. She did the reading. She was the one interested. She was pursuing that. He wasn't. So that was a theme. We were not seeing strong Christian men, not just like who, who aspire to be pastors, but just ordinarily strong Christian like men. Like churchmen. Yeah, just churchmen. That's yeah, real. godly husbands, godly fathers. Yeah. So, that took their role and responsibility seriously. Yeah. So you guys connected that problem to kind of the, the, the main way that church was being done. Well, I mean, it, think about it. One of your favorite men, uh, theologians and pastors of all time, Mark Driscoll. Mm-hmm. Re- remember, he w- actually— Where's the lie? Continue. <laughs> I'm just he actually saw this in his church. Remember that uh, like he, he was famous for yelling at men. Yeah. But it, I mean, from my recollection or from my knowledge, it doesn't seem like he actually corrected anything. Well, I think the problem, like we, we did an episode on this, right? But like the, who the hell do you think you are? And, you know, you've been coming to church for years and you're still doing these things. And then and then you rightly ask the question, did you ever look in the mirror and say, well, we produce this, though? Yeah. Like, this is what yeah. our style How, of church— have you allowed this for years? Yeah. It, I think a big aspect as well was that it wasn't producing culturally distinct Christians. And, and as we looked at it, we're like, well, why should it when the entire worship service is designed— to be an analog of popular culture. How do you mean? From music oh, yeah, yeah. to the casualness, the low church, kind of like non-hierarchical, not emphasizing leadership structure, 
not emphasizing uh, command or go and do or exhortation. Our culture is very casual. It's very, um, you know, it, it doesn't have any kind of sense of the transcendent. Like a light talk. Yeah, it's very much, it's it's light. It's shallow. Our culture, modern American culture is shallow. So when church worship itself is engineered to be an analog of that culture, but just then sprinkling in the Bible to be like, aha, but we've got them. Uh, now they're here because they're, they weren't turned off by like anybody wearing a suit or hierarchy talk or like, you know, legalism, which means like telling people to do anything at, at any time for what for <laughs> whatsoever, you know, and like, oh, we're just going to take the whole service model of um, essentially corporate uh, marketing where it's like, look at the services we provide for you in exchange for your attendance. Come to the church. We'll take your kids. It'll be great. You don't have to worry about them. They suck anyway. Like they're so annoying. We'll just take them away from you. Don't even worry about that. Girl, you just sit down. You want a latte? We got you a latte. Go to the Holy Grounds Cafe. We'll take care of you. You know, you've even got soy. In fact, only soy. You know, you come here, you're gonna hear do you, you like you like bad music? We've got bad music just for you. We made it. We worked really hard on it. You know, come in here like, oh, you you don't like strong men. That's kind of like, oh, I don't know. They're gonna be they're gonna be telling me what to do, like that patriarchy thing. So th- we've got just the guy for you. He will be dressed casually. Uh, and uh, his pants will be too tight. He won't talk for very long, and he will sound like he's from California. Brian is so, now describing himself. <laughs> back then. never been back more then. offended. <laughs> Even back then, no, Eric. No. I did not do that. <laughs> well, the clothes, I mean. The clothes, the clothes, let's be honest. Nobody wants to return to the fashion of their early 20s. No. I mean, actually, some people probably would be fine. My fashion hasn't changed ever. That's true. And nobody has complimented me on my fashion choices ever. Ever and so it's good. You're just consistent. No, consistent. there's one. There's one. One thread that's going through what you're describing with modern evangelicalism, and that's what is the ultimate aim of the worship service? Yeah, uh, you you gave a teaching on this once, like the five things that um, people assume that worship is. Like one oh. of it is like education. You know, yes. like theological education. Right. You know, so if you think that, then you're going to format the service a certain way. You're going to take the distractions out Mm -hmm. and you're going to have very direct teaching and you have to have notes and all that. Yeah, fill in blanks. Yeah. And so you're going to have more sermon, the singing, because the singing is just there. Like, why is it even there? It's an intro, outro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like like transition. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So there are all these things that worship is assumed to be. But in that thread, in modern evangelicalism, and the thing that we notice is that all of a sudden the liturgy was about you. Mainly, yeah. It was about you. The services we provide for you, you know, the music we have for you, the teaching we have for you, like, it wasn't about the worship of the holy and living God. Sorry, Brian put his finger I'm sorry, I confused confused you with that. No, you you wanted to I was thinking that it basically... You end up, and the way you you justify all that is you say, we're removing as many barriers as we can to the unchurched person so that we can bring them in and share the gospel with them. What you end up winning them to is all of the things that they came in with. Yeah. Because you're just basically replicating their entire pagan culture. And and then they come in and they're like, oh, I'm a Christian now. What do I do? And they're like, well, just not a lot different. Yeah. So then what does that produce? Not a lot different. Not a lot different. Yeah. So uh, we started seeing these things and what it was not producing, what it was producing, and and then moved to, okay, what are some of the root causes for 
transmitting, because whether we thought about it this way or not, what we were talking about is why are we transmitting this a certain culture to these people and failing to transmit some culture that we want to, maybe we can't put our finger on exactly what it would look like, strong men, strong women, you know, like good families, you know, holy, righteous, sin repenting, like what would, okay, we're failing to transmit a culture. So what do we need to do differently? And the things that we really zeroed in on very quickly did relate to worship, the the liturgy, the what we were presenting in our worship, and also the way that we treated children, both in worship context, but also overall so in terms there, of Christian education. Was there something like, were you reading a book? I, I know, for example, I'll, I'll tell a story. Uh, the first time I went to a liturgical service was in Kentucky. Uh, Pastor Bill Smith, who's now in the CREC, uh, I believe that church was PCA. We went there and it, it was like, I was like, I don't know what's happening. This is really weird. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause it was like, I mean, we, they had a whole worship booklet, like, you know how we have like a four page yeah, bulletin kind bulletin. of thing. This was like full printed page. I don't know. Maybe it was like 10 pages long, like the Gloria Patri, the, the creeds. Like, is that how you say that? I thought it was a Gloria Patri. I don't know. I'm oh, not, okay. I'm not, a, I'm not a Latin American, so. <laughs> but you have such spice. <laughs> I do. You that such was such style. a dad joke. It such, was so yeah, good. Yeah, dad such joke. a dad joke. You, I love you, you, it. You, I've been you, storing that one up. Yeah. But you dance just, so well. But the salsa. <laughs> yeah. So, but but I remember going there and thinking like, this is really foreign. So uh, one of the things that one of the elders was taking new members through was Jeff Meyer's book, The Lord's um, Service. The Lord's Service. So that was my first exposure to it, and then and then I over time started realizing. Yes, liturgy shapes us. Okay, I get this. It's going to shape a different kind of person. If you're confessing in church, this forms a pattern for all of life. If you're, you know, singing, uh, a singing people, and you're teaching the people that they have to do the singing, then we're going to be singing at the dinner table, and we're going to be singing all the time. So those things were, I, I started to see how they train the affections of the heart. So for you guys, I'm wondering, was it a book? Was it uh, talking to other pastors? What What was the spark or sparks? that kind of got you thinking of family integrated worship. Why bringing kids into worship service? Why is that part of, part of this and, and liturgical worship? It was a long time ago. It's hard to remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. So obviously Christ church in Moscow. Yeah, he is, who must not be named came in at some point. Well, yeah, that was probably like 2017. Had to be 2016. 2016. The, the no, education. I moved All right. I moved here so in 2016. The education piece came in through my wife first in my life, right? Like I said earlier. Matriarchy. Yeah, full. It was, we weren't. To be clear, we were not. We were always <laughs> as based as we are Doth now. protest no. it too much. <laughs> no, but she was reading, um, she was reading a book about the case, either the case for classical Christian education or something like that. And, and then I read, I was like, oh, you, you seem to really like this book. And so I read the book and that was my first memory of exposure to Douglas Wilson. <laughs> but it, but that definitely had a lot to do with it because it, and then the missions conference in 2018, the same Yeah. Game. Yeah. And I, i I had visited on a Sunday morning and I think it was in 2020 mm -hmm. and experienced the liturgy and was absolutely blown away because mm -hmm. I had read about it like in the Lord's service, probably at some point I can, I don't know. It's remember actually right there through sitting that. on the table. Yeah. We read that after though. We did. We had already been one to the beauty. 
it I, don't, was, I, I don't know what to say. Like I, I it, it was an amalgamation of things mm-hmm. over time. Part of it was when you start looking, when you, I guess when you see something finally, that's been in front of you the whole time and you just now notice it like, okay, we're, we're producing a certain type of fruit and it's bad. You know, it's some's good, but a lot of it's bad and we want to change it. You start looking with new eyes and you start to get a preference for something different, Mm -hmm. especially when you experience like the missions conference in 2019, the infamous for us, not for anybody else, probably missions conference in, in Moscow, Idaho. Part of the reason it's infamous is because of the snowstorm. We had to drive back. We drove there and and back in a van packed full of every leader in the church. Yep. A harrowing journey through the mountains. The church would have been over. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like they would have just disbanded. It would have been like, well, we got, it's over. Yep. It so was great. part of it was that, but that was just experiencing the beauty of the music. That wasn't a church service. No. But it does definitely, like, it gives you a taste of something. Mm-hmm. You're like, wow, I, I didn't. It's like a kid. The first time they eat ice cream, mm-hmm. you know, like all they had was pureed vegetables and, and then milk. Like, there was this. And they're like, what have you, you've been holding back on me this whole time. And that's kind of what it was like. Yeah. It is so, interesting though, Dan, I was just going to interject. I remember you know, going to people's houses, they're, you know, singing the doxology and, and, and singing psalms in their homes and stuff like this. And before I understood it theologically, uh, I too had that experience of like, I don't know what this is, but I just want it. They, they seem happy. Um, I think what one of the things that is unique about Moscow, Doug kept his kids. Uh, I went to one of their grace agenda a few years ago and it was like how to keep your kids. And so when you, when you see the outcome and you're like, well, when my kids are grown, I want them to be carrying on my work. So then you start looking more closely at like, okay, what are the things? I've asked a lot of people in Moscow this over the years. I was like, what is the thing? You know, if you had to point to things um, that you would say, like define your culture and why it's been successful. I usually hear corporate worship and probably even bigger is Christian education uh, because they're so central. That's kind of the case we're making. But I think there is something to this of, seeing something, recognizing the beauty and the value of it. And then you kind of go through the process of thinking about it, mm-hmm. you know, and starting to implement it. Well, I know one of the first steps that we had taken before we started singing Psalms, you know, four part, switch to piano. Yep. I guess the first thing was probably applicational preaching, like more directly applicational preaching. Yeah. Overtly you. rejecting the current as defined gospel centered preaching movement. Yes. As it was defined and practiced saying, no, we're going to apply the text strongly. Right. Where the only application is the gospel, trust Christ, behold Christ. You didn't do this. Like Jesus did it perfectly. Just trust Jesus. Right. Don't really worry about doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about (laughs) obedience. Christ obeyed for you. There you go. Uh, So it was applicational preaching. And the other thing was family integrated worship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a, that was much more difficult, although it caused, you know, uh, a lot of pain over a long period of time, applicational preaching. Yeah. Uh, the children's integrated worship was a lot of pain very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> in a short period of time. Cause you're like, Hey, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to reduce guys... the age from 12 to six. Okay. So you did that and before then, 2020. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then from 2020 was the best. Let me tell you what, yeah. cause we had up to six years old uh-huh. and yeah. 2020 came and we're like, we're not doing kids. We're know. never doing kids again. We're not doing kids. We're I'm not, not, not going to bring it back. So the first time we came, there was still 
child, like nursery, I think, basically. There was nursery yeah, there was and like the kids. Hard there was like a check-in thing. Yeah. And I think we walked in and somebody's like, oh, do your kids want? And I just put my hand up and I was like, no, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what a guy making his presence felt. Yeah. No. I'm not even going to address you. I'm just going to give you the hand. <laughs> give you the hand. If you speak to my children, it, we will come to blows. Well, the <laughs> principles that we, that compelled us to have family integrated worship were uh, some arguments I'm sure from from like the Christ Church vein and Presbyterianism. But the idea that you would relegate the indoctrination, the, I guess you could call it worship, like education, you know, on a Sunday morning, you remove the children from the worship. And this is really important because it tells you your aim of your worship service. Is it to actually worship the true and living God? And if it is, why would you take your kids out and relegate that to volunteers, you know, not qualified elders to do the edu, you know, to teach them, to give them games, snacks. I mean, it's babysitting service Yeah. while you're neglecting the corporate gathering of God's people in worship of the true and living God. A huge amount of it comes back to what are we trying to do in worship? Like what is the gathered worship for? And once you reject that it's for mere theological education and it's for the worship of the living God, like remembering and renewing the covenant of our salvation, coming before God in worship and um, being, you know, remembering our sins being forgiven, offering our, our, uh, our uh, spiritual sacrifice. Yes. Being instructed, being charged and sent out, coming to his table. So when you, when you reject that reduction, a lot of other things follow and the kids' ministry thing you realize pretty quickly exists to support the worship service as a classroom. A classroom or a, an emotional experience. Yeah, or a, a, or a, a service-oriented marketing thing. Yeah, felt needs, yeah. like self-help. Because it's, it's hard to have kids in service. It's much harder than having someone else take care of them for you, obviously. So that that change has been around for f- fully for, like, what, three years? Yeah, yeah. Uh, COVID, obviously, it seemed like it made it easy to make a transition at that time because, you know, nobody really kicked back from because we had reduced the kids ministry age from 12 to six. Yeah. And then and we had some people that were upset about that, believe it or not. Yeah. And then in 2020 with COVID, we just said we're not doing anything anymore. Honestly, even there there was another reason why we did that, though. Oh, it wasn't just the kids. Mm -hmm. It was the volunteers. Mm hmm. So you're having to remove your wife yeah. from a worship service once a month, once every other week mm-hmm. in order to watch kids in the nursery yeah. or to volunteer a Sunday school teacher. You know, mm-hmm. some, some, some parents were gone for two months and they were teaching Sunday school. So they weren't in worship for two months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, it was actually longer too, because once we were, went down to six, very, pretty quickly we won the majority of the people and they weren't using it. So we had very few children, even in that transitional period, using it. Yeah. Most kids under six were in the service because most people were like, oh, yeah, I preached a sermon on it that was, um, oh, what was it called? It was probably really clever. Mm-hmm. That's why it I can't so remember it. flipping clever. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, it, it, was, it was called something about the spiritual orphanage. Mm. In, in tracing some of the roots of taking kids out of worship to orphan ministry in England in like the 1700s. Well, it's hard for us to fathom too. I mean, like pre, I think like 1920s, early 1900s, like Sunday school, what wasn't a thing. 
not not as a replacement. No, for no, not worship. as a replacement. It was a catechism worship. hour. It was an instruction hour. It was similar to how we do currently. Now we have a kids' catechism class for certain months of the year and an adult instruction class. That's but even then the kids are welcome to come in the adult if they want. Like right. we don't enforce it, and then we get together for worship an hour, you know, an hour later. So it's not a replacement because the worship service is something different than instruction. Have you seen change in that time? So I wasn't really here for much before, you know, when there was full nursery and all those things. Have you seen a, a change and a difference? I mean, part of this is like, well, you know, we'll check the fruit in, you know, 10, 15, yeah. 20 years, and I can tell you better uh, what's going to happen with the kids. But have you have you seen a change in parenting and the children and the in the ethos and culture of the church? It does a couple things. One, it brings out parenting and discipline issues to the surface. Oh yeah. The school does the same thing. So we're having much more hands-on active shepherding of things like practical discipline because they come out. You you can't have completely wild undisciplined kids in the service um for long before someone's like, "Hey, do you need some help in learning how to spank your kid? Here's the motion." It's like it's like <laughs> teaching a swing, you know. Well, that was like <laughs> an axe or a bat. <laughs> no, so it does that. Um, but the other thing it does, one of my favorite things that it does in terms of the culture development is it protects you from the wrong people joining. So people who are going to come to the church and treat it like daycare and spirit and, and basically exchange my attendance and my tithe, which is usually 1% of their income or whatever or less. for spiritual goods and services. They're usually the loudest complaining, the least contributing and the least seriously Christian people. Right, And so the, all the people that left, not all of them, but a significant number of the people that left our church over this, I wouldn't have them back. Like I wouldn't allow them in membership without significant repentance. I just wouldn't because, because they were the cause of huge cultural issues in our church. This is why like to me, the earlier church model of much more restrictive thought about we're not begging you to join our church. We're actually assessing you to see if we will allow you to join our church which is the biblical method for assessing church membership. It's not, we're going to beg you and market you in the doors and then do everything we can to keep you for the sake of our numbers, our attendance and our giving numbers. No, 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 no. We, we, we only want you to join if you're going to be a Christian here, right? So getting rid of kids ministry immediately as a, as a filter, it, it cuts out huge numbers of people who would join our church who are not Christians, well, I remember pastoring uh, in Colorado. <laughs> that was so and, offensive, and I'm I'm here for okay, it. I, I love it. Thank you, Dan. Uh, but pastoring in Colorado and then previous churches serving in different roles there, when you would have new people come and then they would leave, a lot of times if I talk to them, especially in a small town, you kind of know everybody. Yeah, I would just say, hey, you know, we I'd love your feedback. Like what? They're like, yeah, sermon was good. Uh, didn't really care for the style of worship, um, but honestly, like the. Methodist church down the street with a lady pastor, dude, they have like killer VBS and killer programs for the yeah. kids. And I'm really, a lot of times it was like not single moms, but like spiritually single moms where they uh, would, yeah. they would bring the kids. Dad would stay at home and drink and watch football. She would bring the kids and then yeah. they would be like, she's like, I just need like two good hours to myself. Yeah. But, but, and then you would try to explain to them like, yeah, but that's not what church oh, is. Oh, are your kids orphans? Right. Oh, I did. I thought we were talking about like children that you like they were legitimate. But I think I think that you're right. And I but I think the heart is on one. In, in that <laughs> it just makes me so mad. In that situation, the thing is what Dan was talking about before, to see change, you have to do a lot of really hard work. You gotta go mm -hmm. talk to that dad and be like, listen, man, you're gonna have to take ownership for your family. Yeah. You're gonna have to step up to the plate. 
And, and we're going to hold men accountable to those things, right? Mm-hmm. And as those conversations, it's, it's funny when I first got here, most of the guys who are like pillars in the church right now and have been for a long time, I would ask them questions like, oh, how'd you come to refuge, blah, blah, blah. Like the overwhelming majority of these cases, people that I would talk to would be like, well, I was basically like not doing anything. And one of the pastors sat me down and told me I was a coward and needed to go get a job. And impregnate my wife. And impregnate my wife. And, and fire and, her from her job. And I'm like, well, what? So what What did you do? In many such cases. And the guys that are pre-recorded here, those conversations. Yeah. Just like hit play. And Listen the, to this. The guys who were who stayed were the guys who were like, they were right. Yeah, people people need to be pastored, and that actually means rebuking them for their sins and rebuking them for the ways that they have drunk deeply of the spirit of the age. And maybe they don't even think that they're, we're talking like, oh, these are lifestyle choices. They're not really sins. Like, yeah, my wife works. We don't Christianly educate our children. We actually started talking about these things in terms of sin. We were like, listen, you are, n- you are not free to give your children a pagan education. You're sinning if you do that. So there's the principle. No, you don't have to use our school. You don't have to use a certain curriculum. You don't have to homeschool or private school, but you do need to give your kids a Christian education. That's a principle. Here's how we get it from scripture. Here's a whole sermon on it, right? And this is totally historically uncontroversial, right? The people who will shriek and leave your church over that, you should be cheering. You will be so much better off in six months without those people there. Because those are people who are uncorrectable at exactly the points where the culture has discipled them. So if they're not going to repent, they're, they're either they're not Christians or they're not Christians who are going to submit to your leadership. Right. So honestly, some of the best things that have ever happened to our church are specific people leaving. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. So one of the things that we do that might be different than other churches, maybe this sounds foreign, is that we give reasons why you shouldn't join the church. Yeah, and I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. But it, it just kind of goes back to your mm-hmm. your point about, like, we have to have a filtering mechanism. Actually, yeah. in church history, you had to have a sponsor even to yes. be a member. Yeah. And it so would take a year. Sponsored. You'd be a catechumen yeah. for a year before you would be baptized often. Like, so they might have actually gone a little, they might have fallen in a, in a different ditch. But we're in the other ditch culturally. So we need to like actually learn from from those guys. Even where we say we're not going to replicate every single practice down in the minutia, but they had it more generally correct about the the nature of the church and the nature of what the gathering is, what the congregation is and is for. Because and you could look at the culture it produced and say like, yeah. oh, did they cut the genitals off of children? No, oh, did they murder babies? Our Christian womb? culture did produce that. Yes, like our Christian culture exactly. So. Over a couple hundred years, and I'm not saying um, anyway, whatever. But I'm, I'm. That's <laughs> it's a whole different, yeah. <laughs> big, big thing there. But back to our episode topic here, like this is all related. The reason that it matters so deeply that you get these things right is because your children's hearts, your future, your generations, your legacy, and the the legacy of the church, the future generations of the church relies on getting these things right lest you produce a pagan culture in an apostate culture within one to three generations. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein-packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony, 
And not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. And, that, and that's something that I've really thought about. Uh, we, we have, Dan and I have been talking with Joe Garrisey, uh, backwards planning financial. And it's been really helpful. So basically the idea is you start with the end in mind. You say, where do I want to mm-hmm. get? And then you work backwards. Well, in this situation, it's like, okay, I envision a couple hundred years from now, God willing, that my sons are not tearing down statutes or or just monuments or this church or the yeah, things that we build. Where they wouldn't be saying, let's replace the cathedral or that my parents built with uh, a gay strip club. Right. Right, like that. Because that's literally what we're doing in America. That's right. So then then you go backstream, you know, to the beginning. You say, like, I, I think this, as we're talking about, having kids in worship particularly is really important. I want to tie it also then to, these are really almost two sides of the same coin, but Christian education. Because I think you could get the liturgy part right, but if you didn't do robust every day throughout the year Christian education, it could be homeschooling. In in our case with the church, we said Saint, we're going to do St. Brennan's. Um, there's something about these two things put together that I've never had before in my life uh, until coming here. But I see a totally different fruit when it's like 98% of my children's week is spent during the summer working for somebody from the church, okay? Then during the school year, learning from somebody at the church, usually a man. And you, you know what I'm saying? And then they're worshiping with the people in the church. Like it is robustly – I almost have to be careful because my kids go out in public and I'm like, okay, like we can't be super based everywhere all the time, full throttle. Yeah. We've had to have we've had to have conversations at the school. We're like, you guys, you actually have to know when to deploy the hard word. Well, you can't be just machine gunning memes all day. Like you're actually not. And I think if you don't have that problem, you probably are not being actively conservative. Can I can I do something that's probably inconvenient? Can yeah. I talk about liturgy just real quick before we move on to education? Yeah, yeah, please. Dan. So one of the things that we're talking about enculturation of your kids and keeping their winning their heart. And just to wrap up the liturgy side of that, the, your children will love the things you love. And I think that's really important to remember. So if you walk into our church service, and I'm I'm hoping that the standard male churchmen, you know, member of our church, they're love the singing. They love the psalms. They have some of the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms memorized by mm-hmm. now from singing them and their children do as well. They love singing the songs, you, the Psalms, because you know that on Psalm sing, the kids often overpower the adults mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning. You can hear the kids sing, right? That's a, that's a good, like canary in the coal mine kind of thing is the singing of the congregation. Yeah. But you also see the fruit in the men because of their consistency in showing up for, for worship. 
Sunday morning worship. And so the kids are being trained that dad loves this, and I love it too. But I, Yeah, I think the key thing, like you're absolutely right, you can't fake that. No, you can't fake it. Whereas the other way, if you have a worship service that is prim- primarily about you, whether it's education and experience, felt needs, whatever that is, really that's a very selfish ambition. Your Sunday mornings are now about you and your kids will learn that the highest aim of their heart is to love themselves. Mm. And is that a problem? Even related to that. (laughs) I guess I didn't make that clear. (laughs) One of the biggest things that we intentionally aim for in our gathered worship is difficulty. It should actually be hard. Like there should be having kids in the service is hard. Singing in four parts fuguing tunes is hard. Even the Lord's Prayer. We sing the Lord's Prayer, and it's a difficult old setting of the song at the end of every sermon. Kneeling for confession of sin. It's an hour and a half service every single week. So with with my wife is doing that by the way with six children ten and under without my help every single week that she's there because like half the time one of the kids is sick. So you know what I'm saying. But the challenge, what it does in terms of enculturation is that it builds a sense of achievement, a sense of belonging. There's a richness to it when uh, you think of the difference between a kid who grew up basically eating candy bars and playing video games all day versus the little house on the prairie kids going and, you know, farmer boy, he's Almanza's harvesting with his dad or he's hunting with, and it's, there's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of suffering built into that life. The point is not to be easy. Endurance. If you always do easy things and you teach people that the, the goal is to make it as easy as possible. That's literally one of the goals of modern worship service is to make it as easy as possible, to remove as many barriers as possible. And we're like, no, 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 no. Let's actually make it hard. You know, it should be difficult. And what that does is it actually makes a culture, I think, worth transmitting. Yeah. And I mean, think about the things like your kids learning music. Uh, I, I was laughing this week because uh, for the, the older boys form in St. Brendan's, uh, Kevin is changing. They use crack in Latin and it was too hard. So they're switching to something else. Well, my boys are already like old men and they did it for a year and they, they both got like 95% and up. Yeah. And so now they're like, oh, kids today are so soft. I remember back in we our day, we had crack in Latin. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's so funny. <laughs> but, but even in the like goof, goofball ways oh, that they yes. do those things, it's just, it's funny to me because I remember coming here and thinking, my wife and I both, we were like, man, this, this curriculum based on what we were doing for homeschool, this is really intense. I, this is going to be really hard for the boys. Yeah. And it was. But now they look back at that with, you know, just such pride that they had to do something hard. Mm-hmm. It made them better. Yeah. And then, and then because of that, the culture grew richer. But, but yep. again, to your point, Brian, none of that is because we set out and we said, Hey, we're going to do what's easy, most convenient. Yeah. Like none of this is those things. It has to be a good target. Like the, the thing that, that we're getting at is, is not just arbitrary difficulty, like memorizing a string of 6,000 random numbers would be really hard, but not that satisfying. You know, what we're talking about is which is more satisfying to your kid over the long haul, learning how to make a popsicle stick Noah's Ark, where, where some volunteer has spent an inordinate amount of time to basically do it for them anyway, or by the time they're six, being able to sing the tenor part or the bass part or the soprano part 
on a few in an 18th nineteenth century fuguing tune setting of an entire psalm and actually being able to participate in that and then standing in the congregation with confidence and helping to produce the music of the church and worship to God. One of those things is satisfying. One of those things you forget within six seconds of walking out of the door. Like that's the difference. It's difficulty in pursuit of worthiness of, of a worthy task. And uh, when you do that, there's a, there's a note of transcendence to the culture. There's a note of beauty that, that are, we have a very deracinated culture that's absolutely cut off from any standard of beauty. So architecturally, artistically, musically, culturally on every level, kids don't grow up experiencing beauty ever. I mean, hardly ever. They go out in the woods maybe occasionally or they like see a postcard of Notre Dame Cathedral. But when you build a culture that's difficult beauty, that's centered around like building difficult beauty to God's glory, um, that culture becomes something that kids actually go, I'm a part of this church. And they say, well, I learned Kraken Latin. And I learned, you know, how to, I, I can identify that composer. Yeah, you think the kid that grew up in Madrid, Spain, in their architecture, yeah. would go to Dallas, Texas, and say, "This is better." <laughs> I'm sorry, most <laughs> of our listeners are in Dallas. This. Our number one city for all New Christendom podcasts is Dallas, Texas. Guys, Dallas, Texas is the ugliest city in the world. Maybe well, not in the world. It is so bad. I don't know how you guys live there. <laughs> it's like strip malls and it's strip malls as far as it's similar. I've been to Look Buffalo, at the strip malls. Wyoming. This could all be Buffalo, yours. Wyoming is only trailer parks. Okay? Yeah, and it's beautiful. Compared Comparatively. to Dallas. <laughs> uh, granted, there Dallas, are the Bighorn Mountains, but anyway. I'm sure there's some redeeming quality, but it seems like just a big, humid the food's good. pocket of sadness. <laughs> pocket of sadness. <laughs> I just look at it, I'm like, man, I was just going to make guys, fun of their architecture. You just said it's they're, so bad. they're a depressing people. No, well, the people are probably fine. The architecture <laughs> is so bad, though. And, and the point is that when you have, well, this is, a, this is a stretch, you know, with the Dallas <laughs> connection. But just when you're surrounded by ugliness... It becomes white noise, and and in a culture like that, um, beauty sticks out like a bright red, you know, uh, exotic bird in the middle of a bunch of pigeons. So, so when you have a church like that uh, at the center, doing hard things, making beauty, there's also a sense of calling further up and further in, where if you win the people to that, you've won them to something genuinely worthy and timeless and glorious. So. They're much more likely to stick and want to teach their children that. What about American culture is there even to pass on to your children right now? You know, one of the byproducts, I hadn't really considered this before, is in a world of ugliness, if there's something beautiful, so it, you can win your the hearts of your children and your people to that idea of beauty, but mm -hmm. the people on the outside will despise mm -hmm. that beauty. Yeah, it, You're making your family a target in mm -hmm. a way. This church is a target. Christ Church obviously is a target. Which, like national news. It's yeah. interesting, though, like, when you think about, I think about all the visitors we have from, you know, out of town. When people come in, I, it's usually two things that I hear comments about. Maybe three. Uh, the building is really unique and old, uh, which people like. Like, wow, this is an old-style church building, uh, which is pretty cool. The singing. But the number one comment I get about above every other comment is people go, there are so many kids in here. <laughs> There's so and many there kids are, in worship. There are brothers <laughs> but, but and think, sisters in Christ. Think about that, the so attraction many. of beauty, but also part of the beauty that we're saying, like families worshiping together, uh, being fruitful and multiplying. Mm -hmm. Those things, like beauty, as you described it, those things are rare in our culture. Yeah. So the, the stereotypical church you walk into 
It's old people, a few young people, no families, no life. And so uh, I think, too, even the – it was in the uh, Why Men Hate Going to Church. Char- uh, not Charles Murray. David Murrow, I think, is the is the author. Um, but he says in there, he's like, if you want a vibrant church, he's like, it's like demographically very simple. You need young men and families mm-hmm. because that's going to bring kids and vitality and life. So when I look at our church and I say we have children in worship, the thing that we have is vitality. Like they are literally the future. They are life in our midst. Um, and so that that really is something I think that's winsome to a culture of death. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Absolutely. And uh, connecting to the education piece as well, when you when you start to look at what you're aiming to do and winning your children's hearts and enculturating them, you, you you have to realize that any goal short of enculturing them in enculturating them into the culture of Christ in every part of what it means to be human is inadequate mm-hmm. because it will leave some domain where they can think in a way that's disconnected from Christ, they can reason in a way that's disconnected from Christ. You you need a totalizing culture. So how can you possibly do that without education, particularly when you understand that education is probably going to be the thing in that period of their life, the young years, they're going to be doing more by volume than any other thing, right? They're going to be uh, you know, definitely pursuing education in most settings for more hours in the week than just about any other thing they could be doing. So if you say like, yeah, we've got this great gravity here in the worship or in we do catechism or family worship at home, all those great things. But then they go to public school. 30 plus hours a week. And they're reading and they're thinking and they're learning this whole system of understanding the world and how to think about what they're, how, the world. And you're going to, like expect what? Well, I would expect from that for for them to treat their Christian faith and culture like an accessory to their life, not like a totalizing center. So to me, that's one of the key things in a place like Moscow, Idaho, that made a culture that keeps kids and keeps people there and grows in its richness year over year. Like I think about their hospitality. They they're like um, weapons grade hospitality in Moscow, Idaho. I mean, it's insane. Their their block party they do with Grace Agenda is absolutely insane. They're giving away hundreds of pounds of tri tip that someone cooked, you know, and like the and that's just one little corner of this for free to anybody who shows up. And it's hundreds and hundreds of people. And I think where did this come from? Well, a huge number of the people who are here serving in this capacity. Grew up, went to not only that worship, but they also grew up with a Christian education, and they learned all of Christ for all of life. So so now that the thickness of that culture is, it actually has breadth and thickness uh, and richness to it, that they ended up actually not only keeping their children, but winning their hearts. And now their children are like, we're a part of this. We are doing, we're perpetuating this. I want my kids to participate in this. I want them to be the fourth generation, fifth generation here in this city, in this town, perpetuating this culture. Well, I think that's one of the things that was so big for me, like having uh, sort of preteen, young teens and preteens before we got here and then coming here. Look, the world is against you as it is. Like you feel like all of life, you're trying to push against the current of what the culture is trying to do to your family. Mm -hmm. But- Again, coming here, coming into this culture, it was like for the first time in my life, 
all the major forces around me are pushing in the exact same direction I am. Mm-hmm. And as a father, I felt that feeling of like, I'm going to lose my kids. Like every force was allied against me. And then, and then, you know, fast forward to now and it's like, you know, I can trust that when they're working for, you know, one of the men in our church on a project, like I know the guy, I know that we're aligned missionally mm-hmm. um, when they are in school, like Kevin and, you know, uh, their teachers, like I know that they are, you know, usually by the time they get out of school, they're like, dad, I saw your tweets today. That was hilarious. And I was like, oh boy, that's okay. I got to remember that. <laughs> uh, they but, sometimes see those now. <laughs> but, but it's in the context of like, you know, their teacher is like, dude, their teacher is like, did you see what your dad posted? Check out this banger. <laughs> and you're just like, oh boy. But imagine like, this is what a lot of Americans are dealing with. I talk to these guys all the time, grill Americans who are like, yeah, I don't get it. I'm conservative. I send my kids to school and they come back and they're talking to me about BLM and purple hair. Like they like it. And I think a lot of guys, you know, what I would say to them is, well, this is going to be really hard, but you have to change worship and education. Mm -hmm. And this is why, again, I've been a huge proponent. Obviously we did it, but relocation, if you don't have these things, you need to have them. There's really not a substitute. There's not like, I think a lot of people are like, well, yeah, but I listened to Jeff Durbin online. That's not going to do that, though. You're not going to produce what you want in your kids. And I think, again, episode central to this is we want to win our kids' hearts so that they're the ones erecting new monuments, protecting the old ones. Yeah, advancing the construction project. Um, And to do that, you actually, like, the thing is, if your culture is lame and it doesn't really have a lot of answers for much of life, why would your kids want it? Like, just to be honest with yeah. yourself, what is what I'm inviting them to inherit good? Well, well, think about a lot of men in this country who maybe agree with us. But how many guys go to church and they're like, yeah, I really don't like the teaching or the elders. I really don't like the direction, but we're just going to try to make the best of it. I mean, yeah. even in that scenario, like, wh- what are you winning your kids to? Like, sort of this, like antagonistic relationship with church. They're probably mainly going to hear complaints from you. Mm -hmm. You Yeah. There's actually like a stream of cowardice in that because it's the, it's the easy thing to do. There's no risk. You know what? Changing your worship, you know, where you worship and the education of your kids are actually two of the most difficult things that you could probably do Mm -hmm. as a father. Yeah. They're very difficult. I mean, especially if it requires a move. Could you imagine? I mean, that's, well, you can't imagine because you did it. Um, well, I even I even had a pagan a pagan friend that I worked with, not a Christian, and he said to me because I was d- debating all these things. I was like, "It's really hard." Here's I know my core values are different than yours. Blah blah blah. And he's like, "He's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like your your Christian heritage is like the Puritans." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I love them." And he's like, "Didn't they like flee across an ocean and fight a frontier to establish a faith and a culture, like?" moving states is too much for you. And I was like, dang. <laughs> Just got called out. I got told. Well, and and so the thing is, like, the task is hard. But what would you pay in hindsight? If you lost your kids, what would you pay? Yeah, to go to, back. To go back. Mm-hmm. To go back and do it again. A move would seem small. Finding a new job would seem f- small. Yeah. Even if you go to a place where you're, 
you have to pay tuition for a Christian school. That's a small cost. Mm -hmm. Those are all small costs in hindsight if you lose your kids. All of them small. I mean, I guarantee you that men who have lost the hearts of their kids, they would go back in time and they would give whatever it took in order to change the things that they did. I talked to an old guy about this one time. I was interviewing him and uh, not for the Hardman podcast, but just interviewing him for a different project. And uh, he was like, I love, I love you guys' message. I love what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. He was so up on it. And I was like, well, tell me about your family. And he's like, I have four sons. They're all atheists. And he started weeping on the phone. And he was like, he's like, don't do that. It is the worst thing in the world. Like, it makes it feel like my whole life was wasted. Man, it's brutal. Yeah. And, and I, but it was, you know, I told him and afterwards I was talking to my wife and just praying about it. Like, thank God for those eye-opening moments where you're just like, to Dan's point, anything would be worth it to make it to the right place with the right people worshiping, educating your children. Well, I mean, and a lot of the excuses for people not to move are so lame. Mm-hmm. They're so lame. You know, it's like you're you're next to family that don't even like you, and you that don't you really don't even want your like, kids to be like, and you don't want your kids to be like yeah. them. You don't want your kids to really spend time with them. Yeah, you're at a church you don't like. You're you're at a job you probably hate, right? And then you you look at places that where you know I would recommend people move, and you're like, well, real estate is just really expensive. I mean, it's just expensive to live there. Ah, that's small. That is so small. You can figure it out, guys. You're gonna, you're gonna be fine. I think, it's and Josh, especially, yeah. especially the thing is, you come to a church like ours, or I imagine any good church, and you take a leap of faith, and you, you, you move here, and you swear your member vows, and you go through the whole process, and you're in the church, and you're like, guys, I'm having a really hard time paying my bills. Do you know the opportunities that there are for a hardworking man? There are so many opportunities. Yeah. We have so many guys that are hustling that are just like desperate for help. We actually have the opposite problem. I feel like in a lot of ways here where it's like, guys, there's too many opportunities. It's overwhelming. Oh man, it is. There's yeah. so many opportunities. Yep. There's, there's tons. And, and a lot of it's like that Joshua one, they're about to go into the, the land that God's given them. He's like, everywhere you set your feet, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to drive your enemies out. But every aspect of it's completely new and terrifying. They're like, Think about that. Well, the generation before was confined to the wilderness because they wouldn't go in. Yeah. And, and when it, it's easy to judge them, but the, like in many ways, I, I was reading the accounts in Deuteronomy and Joshua and uh, as we were making the transition here and it's like, yeah, but there's too many obstacles. And then you're like, how are you not just like the Israelites? Oh, giants in the land. I don't think any obstacle that I'm facing is like, I will be honest. The mortgages are giant. <laughs> the, yes. <laughs> 8%. Is a bad number to put into the calculator. I'm not going to lie, guys. Not it's no fun. It's very bad. So, but but you know. But even then, like still, I look at our stories, and it's like, well, God, God has made a way. Lord provides. Um, you know, and you have to have faith, and yeah, I mean, ultimately, not like starting St. Brendan's. It's not easy. It's not an easy lift for anyone. No, no, nothing that we've decided to do was like. You know what this is going to do? This is going to make our life really pleasant in the next six months. <laughs> there, yeah, not the next six months. But it, they will make our lives pleasant in 30 years, even two years, honestly, many of these things. Because it's not – you're not just like going to suffer forever. There's going to be maybe a hard year or two. We're like really transitioning, figuring things out. But 
the question you need to ask is what what is it going to take for me to get two things into the life of my family? Number one, a church community where I am excited to see, I would be excited to see my children buy into their vision of the worship of the living God, whole hog. And number two, how can I then educate them to think about everything Christianly? Mm. If you get those two things right, you know, stuff is still hard. Things can go wrong, blah, blah, blah. But you will be able to say, I think, I, before God, did my duty. I did what I could do. I gave my children all I had. And, uh, and I think you'll reap. So Brian, I I was wondering if you could speak to the method of education. You know, we had explored a homeschool co-op, which would have been quite honestly, a lot easier than starting a school. Why would one, why did we do a school versus a homeschool co-op or even like a hybrid, like cottage model or something like that? Yeah. One of the big motivations, honestly, is to get out of the longhouse. Like you have to, education is one of the biggest, just absolute, um, longhouses in the world, in, in the modern American world. It's dominated by basically feminine and bureaucratic modes of thinking. And I don't mean feminine in like a glorious, godly femininity. I mean the worst of women. Led by. Matriarchal. Yes, it doesn't have the- Chinocratic. Our education doesn't have the note of, jo- of joyful, strong male leadership. It has the, the dominating, ringing note of bureaucratic- female-dominated leadership. Well, it's like the school marms of, like, yeah, what, what, Dolores Umbridge. There's a reason that C.S. Lewis, when he wrote... Harry Potter reference. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when when Lewis wrote The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he made the head of the school that they escape out of, basically, and then come back to at the end. It's a it's a bureaucratic lady. It's Dolores Umbridge, basically. Yeah, ba- essentially. That's that's what it is. And then she, you know, gets elected to parliament yeah. <laughs> at the end, which is, which is perfect. But, um, and I say that because... You'll know. You'll notice if you get deep into the education world and you start evaluating different systems of classical or whatever. You will find that because education so often lands in the plate of mom and dads are just disconnected. They're not reading the books. They're not. They're not educated themselves. They're not engaged. You will find that, and I think most of it is like very much well-meaning. Moms and tend to dominate the world. The the world of education. So if you want to get out of that, then you have to get into a different mode of thinking. And you, I think one of the most important things you can do is have, you know, male teachers, you can have um, male board members, male. So for us, a lot of the school model came back to saying, we actually don't just want to replicate a lot of what we see, even in the Christian homeschooling world, it still tends to be very much mom dominated. And we wanted to have uh, a model where the elders of the church or, you know, or wise and godly men of the church were overseeing the curricular elements. Obviously, we have a huge input from moms. Like we have a huge input from godly ladies, ladies who are passionate about education and know quite a bit as well. It's like I'm not knocking that at all. We definitely reaped harvest there. But um, when when you start to look at, um, I think, the kind of culture that's produced – in a community that has a really good school, it's more of a redwood type of culture instead of a scattered culture. Because instead of everybody kind of doing their own thing, you have this central gathering point where a lot of discipleship and enculturation is happening, and they're all coming together to eat the same at the same table. And uh, 
I also think it, it adds an element when you bring in some of the male element tends to uh, tend towards rigor. There's more rigor in scholastic environments that are um, male oriented. And so, and then also when you look through a historic, if you just do a historic sweep of education, especially in the classical world, you'll find that it is dominated by from the early years of uh, in classical education, you would typically be wealthier families. They would typically hire, it would often be a slave even who would oversee and tutor children through the young years. And then they would be handed off to a retor, which would be a male teacher who would bring them up through a next you know, level of their education. It was very much dominated by male teachers and male administration. And uh, so today, I think where you where you find a lot of male involvement, you'll find higher levels of rigor often. It's interesting in uh, early American history too. I was I was reading this with Lewis and Clark. The vast majority of anyone who was college university educated in America at that time period, their pre college training and much of the training that would you know be like high school years, what we think of now. Predominantly, 99.9% of teachers were ministers. So they were the only ones with the education to get people prepped for college if they want to go to university. So when you think about it, it's like, okay, well, I wonder what the culture was like, particularly in the South, when every single higher education uh, teacher was basically a a male and well-versed in Reformed theology. I mean, it produced something very different. And the schooling would often only go to about age 12 yeah. for many children um, before the, the young man would often go into trades or to they apprenticeship. Would only, yeah, they would only go into higher education if it's like if you want to be a minister, a lawyer. Yeah. That's why you would see a lot of higher education begin, like university-level education begin in the teen years for people that we now think of as like you know very accomplished lawyers or politicians. And I mean like early in American history – Many of them were doing – they were going to their college university education at 16 or, you know, they were – well, it was because in the Great Depression, we started – we rolled out high school essentially as mandatory or normative for everybody, one – partly as a way of keeping young men out of the workforce, delaying their entrance into the workforce to not compete over scarce jobs. So during the Great Depression, this big change happened and stuck as this often happens, you know, like we implement property taxes and then they stick forever. You know, even though they were supposed to be temporary, um, so we we tend to think just generally about education very s- differently than the h- education has been approached in history. And so, a lot of that we tried to go to our model of education w- with an open mind of saying, well, instead of just replicating something that we can buy in a ready-made, let's think about the economic challenges of tuition. Let's think about the male problem of having, you know, more male influence in the classroom and in the board. And, and that's also an economic problem. Rigor. Uh, we, we thought of a lot of these elements, you know, even, even who makes up the student body. Yes. Remember we've, we've bounced around with that. We yeah. were considering like, okay, well, we'll have Christians from other churches. They can send their kids to our school. Yeah, sure. And, but the culture of the student body is so important. Yeah. And, and so we've restricted it to members, children of members only. Yeah. At least for now, when our school is so small that a family or two could really change the culture of the student body, we can't risk that because yeah. we're not, again, we're not trying to be the biggest school on earth. It's no. not the goal. The goal is- In to, part because we don't have a tuition that we're really charging our students Yeah, because it's funded from the tithe, which is a creative 
yeah. way of doing this. I mean, but. <laughs> there's a lot of different elements that were reverse engineered from thinking through this problem of a lot of the problems that we saw in the world of Christian education and saying, how can we best address as many of these problems as possible and also grow and figure it out as we go along. And uh, the Lord's been the Lord's been kind. Our school is tripling this year, roughly, in student body on Tuesday as we record. It's like it's all, the end of August. We're going to September 5th, I think. Tuesday, September 5th, we'll be starting our next year of school with like 3x the student body. And that's about the pace it'll grow for the foreseeable future. Yeah, for at least the next couple of years, probably the next five plus years, that would be, wow, yeah. Hmm. So if you are uh, interested in learning to be a teacher at our school and you have the capacity, <laughs> then um, particularly if you're independently wealthy. Yes, or have a government retirement or a pension. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the military. That's how we, we hacked, hacked it with getting military guys. Because we're like, you got to be able to, you know, support a guy full time, a man with a family. Like, you don't want some weirdo who's anyway, different subject, <laughs> different subject. You know, well, gentlemen, it's been good. Uh, any closing thoughts as we wrap up this discussion? Keeping your kids, winning their hearts, education, worship. Well, yeah, I would just, I would just think forward to your, the trajectory that your kids are on. If you look at the trajectory, do you like that trajectory? And what would you give to change it? That's that's what I would say. Yeah. It's like, do the hard thing. Yeah, fest and alente, make haste slowly. But if you make haste slowly in the wrong direction, you will just get to the wrong place. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. So, so make sure that you're looking at the foundational direction, the trajectory of your enculturation of your children as a father, asking the hard questions, doing the hard, ruthless evaluation, and then saying... I either am now or I need to get to a place where I can fest in Alente, where I can make haste slowly to the right place. But you really sometimes need to make a disjunctive decision where it's like we're going to change the the dynamic of our life in a very disjunctive way. Like we're going to make a big switch now so that we can then plod the rest of our life one foot in front of the other and not make big – you know, not make a yearly big change. That That's the goal. So, yes, fest in Alente. But – Really do that evaluation Dan's talking about in terms of the trajectory when it comes to the education and worship of your children so that you can win them to a culture that's thick enough and beautiful enough and worth worthy enough that you, a Christian culture that you could see it lasting through the generations. Mm. Yeah, and one of the best ways to turn the ship is – and this is what we're talking about – is actually repentance. Yeah. It, repenting to your kids saying, I'm, I've made a mistake. And I, I've neglected this part of my duties mm -hmm. and I, I want to ask for your forgiveness and I'm going to change it. That's, that's one of the best things that you could do for your family yeah. to, to turn, turn the ship, yep. to win the kid, your kid's heart. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, gentlemen, thank you. It's been a great conversation. Shout out to our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you guys. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can become one today for as little as $5 a month goes a long way to supporting this show love to hear your feedback on this episode and others join in the conversation on discord and signal as well if you are a patreon supporter until next time fest in alente as brian said make haste slowly <laughs>